Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. It's the early 90s at Copper Mountain, Colorado. An invasion of young people has taken over the resort, riding in packs, jumping over signs, tables, and trash cans. They strike fear into the hearts of baby boomers, not used to sharing the slopes with such a rambunctious crowd. Resort staff hand out brochures with a list of rules. They call it Shredicate, hoping to convince the younger visitors to behave. It tells them to refrain from stopping on the side or in the middle of a slope. No jumping man-made objects. And under no circumstances is profanity acceptable. It's an epic generational battle. One that's playing out on the slopes of ski resorts around North America as an underground sport is becoming mainstream. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, the rise of the snowboarder. On Christmas Day in 1965, a Michigan dad was looking for a way to keep his two young daughters busy and to give his very pregnant wife a bit of a break. In desperation, Sherman Poppin came up with an idea. He grabbed a pair of Kmart skis that belonged to one of his daughters and nailed them together with pieces of wood at the top and the bottom. The Poppin family lived in Muskegon on the shores of Lake Michigan, where there were plenty of sand dunes covered in light snow. It was too thin for a sled, but perfect for the connected skis, which seemed to float over the snow. From there was born a kid's toy that blended snow and surfing. Poppin's wife christened it the Snurfer. Poppin, who owned a welding supply company, spent the next few weeks creating a prototype out of old water skis he bought at Goodwill. He drilled a hole in the tip of the board and attached a rope to make it easier for the rider to turn and to hang onto it when they wiped out. Poppin then convinced a few bigwigs from the manufacturing company Brunswick Corp to come check out the invention. His 10-year-old daughter Wendy demonstrated the snurfer, sliding down a hill for a group of men in suits and wingtip shoes. She must have been pretty good because Brunswick bought the patent and began making snurfers out of the same laminate wood they used for bowling alleys. To help explain the snow surfer to would-be riders, the company made this snurfer promotional video that they played at snow and ski shows. Snurfing is adaptable to all age groups for play or for sport. There are outrageous hot doggers, and there are Sunday snurfers who coast down the hill. There were other semi-dangerous hybrid ski contraptions in the 1970s, including super slider snow skates, which were my older brother's personal fave. But none were as popular as the Snurfer, which sold more than 750,000 units over the next 15 years, and along the way became a cult phenomenon with kids around North America. There was one boy in Long Island who loved the Snurfer so much that he devoted his adult life to making a better version of it. Before we get to him, there is one other person who played a key role in the evolution of snowboards who I should mention. While Dmitry Milovich was attending Cornell University, he was known to slide down snowy hills standing on cafeteria trays, which I must say was a pretty common form of entertainment for kids and teens in the pre-internet era. Then, when Milovich read in a surfing magazine about using a board to surf on the snow, he was hooked. He dropped out of college, moved to Utah, 
and started working on snowboard prototypes. In 1974, Milovich and business partner Wayne Stovkin got two patents for snow surfboards and opened up a shop in Salt Lake City to sell a product you may have heard of. They called it Winter Stick. Here's some equipment that makes the 21st century look like it's already here. The Winter Stick looks like a tongue depressor for the Jolly Green Giant. The Winter Stick is ridden just like a surfboard, if you had to ride one at high tide in a pine forest. It was essentially a laminated fiberglass board with steel edges and straps for your feet. Unlike the Snurfer, there was no rope to hang on to. It went beyond the toy invented by Sherman Poppin. This was the first modern snowboard. In 1976, Milovich and Stovkin started the Winter Stick Company. And over the next 10 years, they tried to take their boards mainstream. But that never happened. And the original Winter Stick Company shut its doors in 1987. Meantime, that young boy I mentioned earlier who fell in love with the Snurfer was having much more success. Growing up in Long Island, Jake Burton Carpenter dreamed of combining surfing and skiing. When he first stepped on a Snurfer, he fell in love immediately and decided this was the sport for him. But he also knew right away that the Snurfer needed to be wider and longer, and it needed some kind of binding. Zoom ahead to 1977. At the age of 23, Jake moved to Vermont and began working on his version of a snowboard. Inside a converted barn, he built a hundred different prototypes by hand. Some were made of fiberglass, like a surfboard, while others were made of laminated wood, like skateboards. Jake eventually landed on a laminated maple board with a narrow design, single strap bindings, and a rope handle attached to the nose. He began selling his first board in 1978, using his grandmother's maiden name. He called it the Burton Backhill. But the boards were a tough sell at $90 a pop. In comparison, the Snurfer was just $10. Plus, at the time, there wasn't a single ski resort in the U.S. that would allow either of these contraptions. Looking back at that time, Burton has said, quote, I remember once going out with 38 snowboards visiting dealers in New York State and came back with 40 because one guy gave me two back that he had bought. But Jake persevered, and by the end of the 1978-79 season, he had sold 300 Burton boards. By the second year, production doubled, selling over 600 boards. Finally, Burton was picking up momentum. Here's Jake explaining how the board works at an event around 1980. Front foot goes in this binding right here, and then your back foot tucks underneath this back binding. So you've got enough leeway there. The back binding's different from the front binding so that you can adjust your stance, suit your style or whatever type of riding you're doing, whether it's in deep powder or freestyle, whatever. Meanwhile, across the country in California, a professional skateboarder who designed and made his own skateboards decided it was time to branch out. Tom Sims had also fallen in love with the idea of snow surfing as a kid. In fact, at the age of 13, he built a crude ski board in his grade 7 woodshop class. Sims snowboards, first introduced in 1978, had come a long way from that early prototype. With metal edges, they were smooth and more stable to ride. As the 70s turned to the 80s, an intense East Coast-West Coast rivalry between Burton and Sims developed as each tried to dominate the sport. But both men approached it a little differently. In the East, the focus was more on racing, while in the West, it tended to emulate skateboarding. 
which would eventually lead to the development of the snowboarding halfpipe. The east-west rivalry between Burton and Sims was real, and it's widely known that the two men didn't like each other very much. But it served a bigger purpose. It helped propel the sport to the next level. In 1982, the first national snow surfing championships were held at Vermont's Suicide Six Resort. Organized by champion snurfer Paul Graves, the event, which drew 125 contestants, wasn't very elaborate. The starting gate was an inverted picnic table, and hay bales were used as crash pads. But it definitely helped with the sport on the map, and it did gain some much-needed national media attention. The next year, Jake Burton took over the event, and in 1985, he moved it to Vermont Stratton Mountain, where it was renamed the U.S. Open Snowboarding Championship. In fact, Stratton Mountain was the first ski resort to allow snowboarders, which was a major breakthrough for the underground sport. But there were still many mountains to climb to get snowboarding accepted in more places. That's because ski resort owners were worried that snowboarding was too dangerous, and they didn't want to be held responsible for injuries caused by young, daring shredders. Stratton addressed the problem by making snowboarders take a proficiency test before they were allowed on the hill. But there was also a reputation problem. Right from the get-go, snowboarders became known as rowdy, rude kids who liked to party as much as they shredded. There was also the noise. The loud, scraping and crunching sound of a snowboard was unsettling for some skiers. They also complained about snowboarders going too fast and sitting down in the middle of the slope. The list of complaints was actually very, very long. And as a result, most ski resorts, under pressure from their older buttoned-up guests, refused to let snowboarders on their slopes. Riders were often forced to sneak onto mountains after hours, hitching rides with snowcat drivers after the lifts were shut down. To solve the problem, Burton brought on Paul Alden in the 80s as his first resort liaison. Alden went around the country from mountain to mountain, convincing resorts to let riders ride. By 1984, 40 ski resorts relented and allowed snowboarders. And as the sport became more and more popular, that number continued to grow. By the end of the 80s, snowboarding was allowed at nearly 500 resorts. Around this time, the first magazine dedicated entirely to snowboarding hit newsstands. Absolutely Radical, which was later renamed International Snowboard Magazine, debuted in March 1985 and was filled with industry gossip, information about competitions, and new snowboards hitting the market. But more importantly, that magazine gave the industry another bit of legitimacy. As we entered the 1990s, there appeared to be no stopping the phenomenon it was poised to make the move from counterculture to mainstream. And just north of the border, a young rider was setting his sights on the sport. Ross Rebliotti was 15 years old when he bought his first snowboard. Living in Vancouver, Canada, he was already a ski racer, but when he saw his buddies on boards, he needed to try it and was immediately hooked. At the time, no mountains in BC allowed snowboarding, so Ross's dad would drive him and his friends across the border to Mount Baker in Washington. It was just incredible. I mean, that season, 
at Mount Baker, there was tons of powder. And for a number of years after that, um, you know, it was obvious that that snowboarding was um, a superior sport. Snowboards just worked better than skis. Um, skis in the 80s were narrow and long, and the equipment wasn't... Uh, you know, the boots weren't great. Uh, the, none of the equipment was really that great. And the fashion also wasn't very conducive to, you know, what a teenager was wanting to sort of, you know, be like. Ah, snowboard fashion. It couldn't have been more different than traditional ski wear. By the 90s, snowboarders had ditched expensive color-coordinated snowsuits for torn Levi's and shredded sweaters and T-shirts with pictures of Bob Marley. In a 1993 New York Times article about snowboarding, the paper describes the clothing worn by snowboarders as hip-hop wear, insanely huge jeans and three or four layers of big shirts instead of jackets. And of course, there were grunge-inspired flannels as well. And while skiers wore conventional sunglasses or goggles for protection from the sun's glare, snowboarders wore oakley blades, wraparound shades made popular by surfers. Eventually, mainstream manufacturers like Ocean Pacific and Body Glove got in on the act, and they started making snowboard gear in electric colors with larger-than-life logos typically associated with surfing and skateboarding. Boards were accessorized with tons of stickers, featuring the names of snowboard manufacturers like Nitro, Avalanche, Wave Rave, and LibTech, or band names like Pearl Jam and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Some writers even wrote personal messages on their boards. The whole scene exuded a kind of alienated suburban angst. It was a cultural rebellion by Gen Xers against their yuppie parents. You see, by the end of the 80s, skiing wasn't that cool. In fact, it was considered by many to be the epitome of yuppie excess, a pastime dominated by older, wealthy participants. Ironically, though, between the gear and the lift tickets, snowboarding wasn't cheap either, especially compared to skateboarding. But that didn't stop young people from picking it up. As the new sport grew, many newspapers printed explainer articles about snowboarding that often included a dictionary of terms. The Boston Globe in January 1990 had a column with the title, How to Sound Like Totally Gnarly and Rad. It explained that a snowboarder thinks of himself as a shredder and is bored as a deck or a stick. He doesn't snowboard, the term is ride. And if you hear a shredder say, dude, that trail was totally gnarly, man. I'm stoked. I totally shredded it. It means the trail was hard and chewed up and he loved carving into it without falling. It was like the media had discovered an alien group of young people who were taking over society. But I guess in a way they kind of were. In the 90s, ski resorts were hurting a bit, mainly because the number of skiers had flattened out at about 10 million. But snowboarding was exploding in popularity. By 1993, there were 2 million snowboarders in the U.S. Just 10 years earlier, in 1983, there were only about 1,000. It was the fastest-growing winter sport. And struggling ski resorts soon realized they were the key to keeping their businesses going. Snowboarders had gone from the bad boys and girls to kings of the mountain. And along the way had helped to save the struggling ski industry. They were no longer the unwanted outsiders, but a very important part of the industry. Another big breakthrough for the sport happened in 1990. 
when a Colorado farmer was commissioned to design a machine that would make building halfpipes easier. You see, until then, there was only a few ski resorts that had halfpipes, and they weren't that great. Because they were man-made, they were pretty small. Plus, maintaining them was incredibly labor-intensive, so most were poorly groomed. Enter Doug Waugh. He came up with the pipe dragon during the sport's ancient past, 1990. Now, where there's a halfpipe, there is usually a dragon. And while it looks like it ought to be harvesting sugar beets, it cuts the best pipe on the planet. The pipe dragon is a giant piece of farm equipment that cuts big pipes out of large piles of snow and perfectly grooms them. By 1992, thanks to the pipe dragon, more pipes and terrain parks began popping up across the country, giving the freestyle revolution even more momentum. Soon, everyone was trying to cash in on a sport that was no longer seen as just a fad for ski school dropouts. It was big business, making even bigger bucks. Traditional ski companies joined the hundreds of snowboard startups and began making boards. Burton perfected the freestyle board when it released the Mystery Air with freestyle legend Craig Kelly. And there were competitions everywhere. Many riders were making six figures through prizes and sponsorships. It was the golden age of snowboarding. In 1997, ESPN held the first ever Winter X Games at Snow Summit in Big Bear, California. It showcased snowboarding as well as ice climbing, snow mountain bike racing, and super modified shovel racing, whatever that is. It included a half pipe that was just 12 feet high. Today, they can be up to 22 feet high. Medal winners that year included X Games icon Sean Palmer, who won gold in the snowboard cross event, as well as Daniel Frank, who took gold in both the men's slope and silver in the halfpipe. The four-day event was attended by nearly 40,000 spectators and broadcast on NBC as well as ESPN, a very successful coming-out party for the sport. But much more was in store for snowboarding. It was about to barrel onto the world stage, and unfortunately, it would be a yard sale. In 1995, the International Olympic Committee announced that snowboarding would be added to the 1998 Winter Games in Nagano, Japan. Ross Rebliotti, like other riders, believed the time had finally come for snowboarding to be seen as a legitimate sport. We believed so much in, in how much fun snowboarding was that, and the criticism that we got from the ski industry at the time and the, the skiers, for example, that didn't like snowboarding, um, I think was motivation for us to really, you know, go above and beyond and show, you know, how, what level of expertise, you know, you can achieve um, with snowboarding. Two snowboard events for both men and women were added to the 98 Winter Games, Giant Slalom and Halfpipe. In a controversial decision, the IOC gave jurisdiction over the event to the International Skiing Federation instead of the International Snowboarding Federation. This wouldn't make a difference for the audience, but it really angered a lot of people in the snowboard community including Terje Hawkinson of Norway, who at the time was the world's best snowboarder. He boycotted the games because of the decision. But others like Rebliotti did not want to pass on the opportunity of a lifetime and compete at the Winter Games. Rebliotti had been on the World Cup circuit for eight years, training 250 days a year. Heading into Nagano, Rebliotti was ranked third in the world, and he was touted as a medal hopeful. Just like the sport, the 26-year-old Canadian who once had to drive to the U.S. to find a mountain that would let him snowboard, 
had come a long way. Like in skiing, snowboard competitors in Nagano had to ride between sets of poles, or gates, that are spaced out down the hill and make up the course. The goal is for riders to hit the gates the fastest on the way down the course. In 1998, riders were allowed two runs on the giant slalom course. The two times were then added to determine the winners. On the day of the giant slalom event, February 7, 1998, the weather started off beautifully. With clear blue skies, a temperature of minus three, and just a slight wind, the course was in perfect condition. But after the first five racers completed their second run, fog and snow hit hard. With poor visibility, the race stopped for about 30 minutes. Riders complained that ski events would have been cancelled for the day. But as the poor cousins to ski racers, snowboarders were forced to carry on. Ross Rebliotti entered the final run in eighth place. Figuring he had nothing to lose, he decided to take the course a little more aggressively. He'd rather have no time than a slow time. Thousands of Japanese fans cheered enthusiastically as Rebliati shredded his way through the heavy fog, completing the course in 1 minute and 4.09 seconds. It was a gold medal run. Rebliati had battled his way from 8th to 1st to win the first ever Olympic snowboard event. For a short time, it looked like Canada might actually sweep the medals. But Rebliati's two Canadian teammates, JCJ Anderson and Mark Fawcett, fell in their second runs and missed the podium. Silver went to Italy's Thomas Brugger, and bronze went to Switzerland's Yuli Kestenholz. Rebliati was snowboarding's golden boy, and after the greatest race of his life, he hugged his father and cheered. Rebliati was on top of the world, but that was all about to come crashing down. After winning gold, Rebliotti and his teammates spent the night celebrating. Athletes from other countries and sports popped by his hotel room to look at the gold medal. It was a dream come true for Rebliotti and the sport. Snowboarding had finally been legitimized on the world stage. But what happened next changed everything. We were in my room after breakfast with a number of athletes just hanging out and uh, coaches came in and said that, you know, everybody needs to go back to their rooms and that I better sit down for some news. And so I did that and um, they told me that I had tested positive for something um, that they didn't know what it was for, though. Rebliotti and the world would soon learn from Juan Antonio Samaranch, the head of the IOC, that the snowboarder was being stripped of his gold medal. The executive board of the International Olympic Committee decides, one, the athlete Rebaliati Ross, member of the Canadian delegation, is disqualified and excluded from the 18th Olympic Winter Games with immediate effect for presence of marijuana metabolites, a drug subject to certain restrictions under the IOC medical code. This was confusing to Rebliati because he had stopped smoking weed in April 1997, nearly a full year before the Olympics. We were pretty unsure of what the timing was like back in those days. There wasn't really that much information or internet to really research it. So, you know, I just randomly, arbitrarily said, okay, April's going to give me plenty of time, you know, if I, you know, but by the end of the season, I'll have, you know, basically some time off where I can 
you know, decompress after the tour, smoke a few joints, and then in April I'll start my non-smoking regiment um, to meet the Olympic criteria and to go through my drug testing, which I did. But that didn't mean the people around him had stopped smoking pot. Rebliotti and his coaches maintained the positive test must have been from inhaling secondhand smoke at a going-away party he attended on January 31st, a week before he competed in Nagano. But more importantly, there was some confusion over whether cannabis was even on the list of banned substances. It was a controversial decision. The IOC does not consider marijuana a banned substance, but it is on the International Ski Federation's restricted list, with a threshold of 15 nanograms per milliliter. Rebliati was just a trace above that. The Canadian Olympic Committee appealed the decision to strip Rebliati of his medal. And while they were waiting for a decision, the young snowboarder was taken to a police station in Nagano. In Japan, it's illegal to have THC in your blood system. So when the Olympic drug testers found the trace amounts in Rebliati's sample, they reported him to police. Rebliati's room was searched, and he was interrogated by officers at the police station for about four hours. During that time, no one realized he still had the medal tucked in his pocket, because he hadn't actually been forced to physically hand it over. And that turned out to be a good thing, because the IOC reversed its decision. Cannabis wasn't on the banned substance list. Rebliati would get to keep his gold medal. Addressing reporters at the time, he said the incident had got him thinking about making some changes. I mean, I'm definitely going to, uh, you know, change my lifestyle. Um, unfortunately, I'm not going to change my friends. For you, I don't know. I don't care if any. I don't care what you think about that. I think my friends are real, and um, I'm going to stand behind them. I support them. I'll never, uh, I'll never deviate from that. I might have to wear a gas mask from now on, but whatever. Looking back at that time now, Rebliati realizes that when he spoke to the media that day, he was still struggling to make sense of the whole experience. It was a range of emotions, and I understood the comedy of it, um, because weed's kind of funny, and it's, it's funny like that. But also, it was a real situation that really happened to me. And, you know, there was a whole, regardless of what it was about, just to be thrown into the limelight like that is you know, difficult in itself, Um, let alone losing sponsors or the fact that I made it to the Olympics and won. Like, I never really got to process all of that. And, you know, really threw me into a state of, you know, what I would call PTSD for, you know, around 10 years. After the 98 Olympics, Rebliotti continued to compete in the World Cup Tour. And at every event, he was dogged by mobs of reporters who wanted to ask him not about the sport, but about his use of cannabis. It wasn't the attention that anyone wanted, not Rebliati, and certainly not the organizers of the snowboard tour. And he says corporate sponsors didn't want to touch him. Halfway through the 1998 season, Rebliati quit. His days of snowboarding were over. But it wasn't the end for the sport, not by a long shot. It continued to grow in popularity after the 1998 Olympics. At the 2002 Olympic Games in Salt Lake City, 33 million viewers around the world watched the halfpipe competitions. And in 2006, Snowboard Cross was added to the Olympic program. Slopestyle premiered in 2014, 
and Big Air made its debut in 2018 at the Winter Games in South Korea. The early aughts also brought us snowboarding legend Sean White, who burst onto the scene in 2005. He competed in 12 events that season, including five Grand Prix Olympic qualifiers, two X Game events, and the Winter Olympics in Torino. He won gold in all 12 events. Meantime, Burton Boards won the battle with Sims Snowboards. Burton, which is still privately owned, holds over 50% of the worldwide snowboarding market. Sims, on the other hand, began struggling in the mid-90s, thanks to a few bad business decisions by Tom Sims. The brand was licensed to another company, and their boards went in and out of production, until it was successfully relaunched in 2015. Sadly, though, in 2012, three years before the relaunch, Tom Sims died of a heart attack. He was 61 years old. In addition to building boards, Sims also won the Snowboarding World Championship in 1983, and he had the honor of being Roger Moore's stunt double during the 1985 James Bond movie, A View to a Kill. In 2019, the sport lost another legend. Jake Burton, long considered the cool dad of snowboarding, passed away from complications related to cancer. He was 65. Today, as Gen X boarders make their way into middle age, shredders and skiers coexist on mountains around the world like never before. There are only three ski resorts in the U.S. that still don't allow snowboarding. Mad River Glen in Vermont, as well as Alta and Deer Valley, which are both in Utah. Terrain parks once dominated by snowboarders are now home to half-pipe skiers, a new era of freestyle skiing, which began in the early 2000s and further blurred the lines between ski and snowboard culture. Snowboarding hit an all-time high in the 2010-2011 season, with over 8 million riders. But that number has been falling ever since. Part of the problem is shifting weather patterns, not enough snow, plus the rise of free skiing. The popularity of shaped dual tip and fat skis has made skiing easier and more versatile, allowing skiers to do rails and tricks in terrain parks. For sure, the sport seems to be in a decline. And in another telling sign, Burton's U.S. Open Snowboarding Championships, which moved from Stratton, Vermont to Vail, Colorado in 2013, was cancelled for good this year, replaced with a new event called the Burton Mystery Series, which hopes to promote up-and-coming snowboarders. Wherever the sport of snowboarding goes in the years to come, it will no doubt continue to be a wild and crazy ride. Thanks for listening to this look back at the golden age of snowboarding. And thanks to Ross Rebliati for sharing his Olympic memories. In recent years, he started a cannabis company called Ross's Gold, choosing not to change his ways as suggested in that 1998 news conference. And he now prefers cycling and skiing over snowboarding. If you haven't already, make sure to follow our show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. And if you're new to the show, go back and check out some of our older episodes. If you have a suggestion for an episode, I would love to hear from you. Send me a message on Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History or on Instagram at That 90s Podcast. You can also email me at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kathy Kinzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez, and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s. 